You're listening to Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. This week's guest is legendary horror director Eli Roth, one of the best. The Hostel movies, he's the Bear Jew in Inglorious Bastards. He's a dear old friend of mine. We used to run in the same circle back in New York. It was a real pleasure catching up with him. Uh, We talked about his growing up with a Freudian-trained psychoanalyst as a father, our Jewish guilt, how he and I coincidentally jerked off to the same horror movie back in the 80s. He was a cybersex operator for Penthouse? Come on. Now let's get inside of Eli Roth. It's my point of view. You're listening to Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum was not recorded in front of a live studio audience. My vision, why isn't your vision gone? My vision is still... I, are we recording? Yeah. We right, why is my vision gone? Um, I don't know. What a great way to start a podcast. Why is Eli, why is isn't your, your vision, vision gone? gone? Well, You're a 45-year-old man. I'm a 45-year-old man, and I still have both eyes. It's weird. I sort of expected it, too, because my bro- my older brother's glasses, my dad has glasses, my- nothing. I always had, like... God, you're lucky. I had, like, 15, 20 vision. I vision like a hawk. I had, like... And it would drive people crazy. I'm like, you can't read that? Like, I could read street signs from across the field. You still get full hard-ons? Yes, I do. You I keep get, them. Yeah, I keep them. I full hard for you. Bob. I know. We're with yeah, uh, Eli <laughs> Raphael Roth. Eli, thank you for allowing me to be inside of you today. You know, Michael, there are a few people that I enjoy having inside of me more than you, and that's and I'm not just saying that. That's like that's just not today. That's like for for a long, long time. Eli, where did Raphael? Was your family fans of Sally Jesse or the Ninja Turtles? How did that Can work? I tell you, my my first of all, my parents told me it was Raphael until I realized it was pronounced Raphael. Raphael the Angel. Oh, and it was probably the most made fun of name at Angel Elementary School. Eli, which was a very weird name back then. Not Elijah. Not Elijah. Just, just Eli. Eli and. You know, they go like, what's it short for? And my joke was, it's short for convenience. (laughs) Good comeback for a child. Uh, And then Eli Roth was seven letters, which was like a phone number. I was like, well, I just, that's just my phone number. So people would try and, I I had like a lot of little, I had to come back with little things that in second grade, you know, you you sort of made your name seem cool. And then Raphael, I had to wait for a long time. And of course, kids just called me that to torture me. I hated it until Ninja Turtles came out. Then once Ninja then you were cool. Out, then I was cool. I was and uh, Eli Manning. It took a long oh, time yeah, for that to come cool. around. Yeah. But I, I was, you know, Rosenbaum, Rosie. They called me Rosie Palms. You had a great last name, like Roth. It was like Moth. There's nothing you Roth could do. Roth was simple and cool, like Eli Roth. I was Michael Rosenbaum. No, but Rosie's a good name. But the best, the actually the best nickname was like we, it was one night we were all probably 25 and Matt Ballard was really drunk, drunk. Hammered. and MC i was hammered. like i was like designated driver which mm-hmm. was the thing we all did before uber and they said how are we gonna get home and ballard goes have loth take us have loth take us it, and that became the name then it was loth to like this from, day, to this day loth, loth right it was ba- matt ballard the greatest matt ballard he is amazing ballard so you director writer actor pianist Pianist, guitarist, Gordon, trilingual, Gordon Lightfoot, Maven. Oh my God! Where do we love you? you where box. do we even? Should, should we tell people our like? Yeah, history I think you know it's so like it's one of these the things, context. conversations where we could st- we, we should start from scratch. Yeah, we really should start uh, from the beginning. Uh, by the way, who's David Kaufbird? That was David Kaufman. Was a kid from my high school, and I used to draw pictures of his head on a bird's body, 
And so I would like act like he would float up because you'd beat your locker. You'd be like, he was the kid that would just neg everything you did. But like, like in in lockers, your locker was like your identity right. before your like social media page. That was like your Facebook page was your locker. Yeah, and you had to put up like California beach bums. Like you'd have to find cool postcards of where you were over the summer and put them up in your locker. Right. So kids, like it was a whole fucking thing in junior high and high school like decorating your locker yeah and you had to sort of look like you didn't give a shit but also have enough cool stuff that people would be like wanted to hang around your locker to see all the stuff so in what it. did like, this asshole kaufman do he would come and be like well, she's not that hot dude he talked like <laughs> he thought he it's like he watched the oh. breakfast club judd nelson and was like but he would come up with these lies every day he was like yeah, dude, Dolph Lundgren was at my karate club. I kicked his ass. We're like, you did not fight Dolph Lundgren. He'd be like, yeah, I went to the arcade. I saw Anthony Michael Hall. I kicked his ass in Centipede. We're like, but it was nothing that you could really prove that didn't happen. Do you have a character in any of your movies that you kind of were kind of based on David Kaufman? Kaufberg. Yes, my character Justin in Cabin Fever is me doing an impression of David Kaufman. Really? I'm not even acting. I'm literally doing my Kaufman impression. When you're telling the story about the bowling? Yeah, the... everything. Well, the bowling alley really happened. The bowling alley was a place called Sammy White's Brighton this Bowl. This is in Cabin Fever, a scene for his first movie, Eli. Yeah, we taught, we discussed a bowling alley massacre. And I remember when I was like 11 years old, we used to go to Sammy White's. He played for the Red Sox. In Brighton, Massachusetts, I right. changed it to the name. You're from Newton. You're I am from Celtics Newton. fan, Red Sox fan, yes. Bruins. Yes. Newton, Mass. And <laughs> and so we we went bowling every week. It was Candlepin. I didn't understand there was anything other than Candlepin bowling at the time, which is like – What does that mean? Candlepin, the ball is like the size of a softball, and the pins oh. are tall and thin. But it's a very Massachusetts thing. But if you grow up there, then you assume that's like – that's everything else we call big ball bowling. Right. Like – Candlepin bowling was like, that was bowling to us. Everything else is like a joke. So we would go candlepin, and it's good because when you're a kid, the balls are light, so you don't, you know, you can sure. throw them easier. And then we were asked my dad, we're like, can we go this weekend? He's like, no. I'm like, why not? He's like, the bowling alley's closed. There was a, like a, a murder there. Like, what happened? And, in, and one of the guys came back and robbed the place, tied up the employees, and like beat them to death with a ball peen hammer and this. bowling pins. Oh yeah, this and the, is real. This is based. Oh, it's on real. real. And the guy, the murderer, went is in Walpole State Prison. And the story, the like urban legend, was that he has a tattoo of the bowling of a bowling pin for each person he killed. And when he comes Come up to on. the parole board, they make him show the tattoo, and it's got the names of his victims. And they're like parole denied. And today, and then it was an Acura dealership, and I'm not sure what it is now. So all these terrible stories come from they're actually everything. facts yeah everything everything all, all the stuff is like you just hear weird stuff and you just write it down you think i'll put that somewhere so i, I gotta figure this out i gotta because people think oh this guy eli he's got he's such a dark guys he does these dark movies and he dark know, dork guy you're like me it's like people think i'm you know it's like he's lex luther and they they meet me and they're like more like lex loser because I'm not like a billionaire, brilliant Brilliant, person. Brilliant mastermind sitting (laughs) in your lair. No, it's sort of like, you know, then they meet me like, you're really kind of, you're like funny. Funny, you play hockey and you're really into I'm just not Lex Luthor. It's called acting. Yeah. Uh, Your dad was a psychiatrist slash psychoanalyst. True, Freudian. Come on, dude. No, it's true. That's actually two different things. Like, I was like, are you. What's the difference? A psychiatrist gives you drugs. Yes. Psychoanalyst kind of puts you to sleep. Psychoanalyst is trained in the Freudian method. It's like a very specific type of psychiatric training. Like, and and then my dad became a training analyst and associate clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard. Very smart. Titles, I don't even know what they. I'd be like, what do you do? All we knew was that people, like our patients, 
my dad's patients would come to our house, so they had a separate entrance. Did so you ever I, listen in on them? You couldn't. It was like all double door. Professional. We were super like respectful. We're like, uh, my dad would go, you know, they're paying for college, so yeah. be nice. So and and it was a whole rule of like, you don't talk to them. You just maybe wave hi. You don't play in the driveway. If you got to our house, you have to be quiet because my dad's seeing patients. But did you ever see them walk out like out of the house? All the time. And just any weirdos that you were like, oh my gosh. No, my dad would never let weirdos in the house, which was kind of disappointing. Nobody <laughs> understood it until growing pains because that's what, you know, Seaver, Dr. Seaver did. Alan Thick. Alan uh, Thick, the late Alan Thick. Late, I love playing hockey with I know yes, you played hockey the with best. But, you know, Ben, Maggie, the, the Seavers, <laughs> oh, yeah. I would be like, when I told people, like, my dad's a psychiatrist, he worked at home, because nobody else's dad worked at home or did that. No, I never heard. And then they were like, oh, but for a while, when we moved in, our neighbors thought my mom was a, a hooker and was, like, running a brothel out of our house because there were these men coming in and out all day. Wow. Yeah, they did. It was such a that rare thing. That was actually thing. my house, That ironically. was your house. Exactly. That was my house. My dad once sat me down and said, Michael, are there any men that show up to the house when I'm at work that you don't recognize? I'm like, no, I recognize all of them. <laughs> not, not exactly true. Not quite. You, your, your mother's a, a, a painter? Painter, yeah. She was a music teacher in the New York City school system. She helped organize the first New York City teacher strike. When she was like 22, I think about this now, it's crazy. When she was 22, she was a teacher in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn, yep. in the worst neighborhood. It was an elementary school that was the first one to have a full-timed armed New York City police officer in the elementary school. And my mom was the music teacher. And she told me the stories, like kids would come in, with like in zero degrees with no jackets and they'd be like, my mom burned it down the incinerator. And one girl was like, she's like, what's your name? The girl's like, my name's female. Like the parents hadn't even named her. And she would always have like cookies for the kids and was teaching them violin. And some of them went on to be professional musicians. But she she told me that there was like, a bro, speaking of brothel, there was, there was a whorehouse across the street. And she'd be like, where are the fifth graders? And like, they pulled them out. And then like one kid grabbed your ass in school and she like <laughs> she smacked him away, but she called the mother and the mother said i don't know what's going on i gives it to him in the morning i gives it to him at night i don't know why he needs it at school are you kidding no it's an exact quote and my mom was just like it, it was just like you're dealing That's the saddest craziest the saddest weirdest yeah wow strange so my mom had like crazy you know but she was very you know she was a music teacher and then when, at 40 she started painting wanted to be an artist and started went to museum of fine art school in boston and so she was painting, would have shows in Boston. This was kind of all through junior high and then high school. Um, so I had like the artist mom, the psychiatrist. Or were you – I mean, was there a lot of pressure on you to be like – I mean, your dad went to Harvard. Your mom's this painter, psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, Freudian. Like how do, how do you – I mean, what were your aspirations? Were you like, oh, my God, I've got a lot to live up to here? I mean, Not at all because I had no interest in being a painter and I had no interest in being a doctor. I was like, I want to make chainsaw movies. I really was like, I'm going to make Texas Chainsaw so, Massacre. Uh, that was, so, so and, my parents, yeah. and my parents were like, great, you can do it. My, it was, it's weird because they were New Yorkers and they'd grown up in – my dad went to high school performing arts and was going to be an actor until he was like a senior in high school or in college and switched to pre-med. But my dad had been cast in national shows. My dad was like an amazing actor as a teenager. And at performing arts, that was right down the street from the actor studio. So my dad in high school – would like leave class and see James Dean and Marlon Brando literally down the street. It was a block away from where the actor studio was. My dad told me, <laughs> this is awesome. you know, it's even better. I think he knows someone. My know. dad told me he was in the very, very, very first group of Scientologists because all of the actors in New York city were doing it. And it's where they go to meet girls. Now he's not a Scientologist. My dad was like, I don't know. 
17 or 16. Hanging out with Tom and these Cruise girls, the first. These girls were like, would be like, come, come to this thing. And they would go, and it was literally, L. Ron Hubbard was living on a boat in the East River, and it was a, an apartment in New York City. And like, it was kind of like the weird, cool thing to do. There were like 20 of them. And my dad, after a while, was like, this is weird. And he said they would stand in the street corner and be like, we're going to astral project with our minds going across the building. We're all going to be on the roof of that building if we all focus and concentrate. And then my dad's like, this just isn't worth it. For and the nobody chicks. was on drugs. My dad's like, there's got, no, my dad's like, there's got to be better ways to meet girls than this. You talk about like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and how you grew. I, when I was a kid, I would come home and most kids would have milk, milk and cookies. Their mom would leave them. I would have VHS tapes of Motel Hell. The best. Make them die slowly. The greatest. Uh, <laughs> alien. Amazing. And my mother would say, hey, you're going to watch these with me. I go, mom, why? She goes, well, your father. When I go, but you realize I'm eight. Then I, I read that you were like eight years old, I guess, when you saw exactly. Alien, and it sort of changed your life. So me, I got my mother, actually, I give her credit, but I also, there's a reason why I sleep with a bat next to my bed. Right. I look under the bed every night. I have an alarm system and a dog. Yeah, I, I still it. freak out. I still want to be scared. I still love horror. You and I have that in common. We love horror. But it started at a young age, and I remember I used to, I was the loser in high school who used to borrow my parents' VCR. Mm-hmm. Hook it to my VCR and dub and, tapes and dub like yeah, you rent Reanimator and make like a super tape of Dawn of the Dead. Yes, the, and I would look at the timing and be like, okay, I can fit Dawn of the Dead, Evil Dead, and one other ninety minute. You know, the Slayer or Scalps, like whatever. Right, the, I, like yes, these great VHS movies. And what's I mean, there was there was an amazing time because we're the same age. So when we were eight years old, a movie like there was this weird thing of horror that your friend's older brother had seen it. And it was like dazed and confused kind of era. And they, so so Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Last House on the Left, they weren't shown on television and there was no VCRs. So if a movie left the theaters, it would never be seen again ever in the history of humankind. Right. And you'd have to like listen to some kid's older brother describing it. Like remember hearing about Jaws, yes. but not really seeing it until television. And like all these movies then in like 83, 84, 85, VCRs became affordable and we got our first VCR in 1984. Maybe it was 83. And all of a sudden, your birthday party was like, we don't have to go to the movies. We can just rent Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and watch it What was the first the movie you remember seeing, first horror movie that just really influenced you? Well, I saw, I mean, in a theater, it was Alien. I went to see it opening night. I begged. I remember seeing the trailer for that and begging my dad. I remember it was like a Shabbat How dinner. old were you? I was eight. He let you see this. Our parents allowed us to see these movies. They're responsible. It was the only way us. to go see it. They took us. And my, but my dad was always like, man, it's just a movie. And I remember watching Alien, and it said, produced by David Geiler and Walter Hill. And I remember saying, what does the producer do? My dad's like, it's producer. <laughs> they have to raise the money. And then directed by Ridley Scott, I was like, what does the director do? He goes, well, he gets to spend all the money and tell everybody what to do. So at eight, I was super aware of what a director did and a producer did. And then I was like, I remember my bar mitzvah, the rabbi sits, like the rabbi at 12 years old, the rabbi sits down and like, asks you, what do you want to do with your life? Because when you're getting bar mitzvah, they're going to say it in Eli, blah, blah. And so you, there were so many Jews in Newton, you get a bar mitzvah twin. So me and this kid, Rich Gilman, were paired up. We're friends. Gilman, Gilman, Roth. Gilman and Roth, two nice Jewish boys. And Gilman wanted to be a writer. So it's like, what do you want to do? It's like a writer. And it's like, Eli, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be a, pick, a producer director. They're like, well, which do you want to be, a producer or director? I was like, well, I want to be both. Because really, it's the only way to retain control of your cut. Come on, you're eight I years old. How old no, are you? No, no, this is when I was 12. Oh, you're, tw- well, and, you're 12. And, and I said this to the rabbi, and he's like, what do you mean? And I was like, Stanley Kubrick is a producer-director. He's Jewish. He has total control. I want to be like Stanley Kubrick. He goes, okay. Like, 
I was I was like Rushmore. I was like this little weird freaky. I was like the Stranger Things kids. We were both like that. Yeah. Like in my parka, in my hat, walkie talkies, Dungeons and Dragons, like total. The worst thing about nerd. the VHS tapes, and I still have some of them, mm-hmm. is that I would spend thousands of hours through high school dubbing these tapes that are now obsolete. That now are they erase themselves? <laughs> yes, I know. They <laughs> All disintegrate. that wasted fucking time. Man. Disintegrate. Well, it's, that's the beauty of film. You know, if you look at our old. It's like our digital photos from 2003. There's like an area of my life. My life sort of stops at 1998 and then kind of picks up again when I got my phone. There's like a 15-year period of digital photos that are on some hard drive I can't access anymore in an old program of iPhoto. Like we used to get our photos printed in 99. I drive out to the photo lab in Santa Monica, like all our bowling photos. Like you print them, you put them in a photo album. Then I remember the digital camera started and iPhoto and iTunes. And now all that stuff is obsolete. So it's like... Now we have our Instagram and social, but there's like a weird period of like 15 years of digital stuff. Well, don't you miss it? I mean, think about it. I mean, I know technology is amazing and the things you could do now and it's great and we could talk about that ad nauseum. But for some reason, the the instant gratification that we didn't have back then when you're talking about you got to hear about a movie and then you got to see it and you got to hear about And then these pictures, like if you see a picture from like 1988, you're like, oh my gosh, this might be the only one. I know. There was something really cool. And now it's like with movies and everybody could see something right away and say, no, I'm not seeing that. And the Rotten Tomato scores and the and the and all these reviews about it. And back then it's just like you hear about something and you watch it and you take a chance and you watch a movie and you're you have there's no real reviews except Siskel and Ebert. No, exactly. It was Monday morning. You waited to hear what people. You know, there's, you could always get a good opening weekend because the word of mouth wouldn't hit until the next weekend. Right. Now it's five minutes into it, or even before it comes out. The rut. But I also think the truth is people just like want to see something because they want to see it. You know, there's this whole thing in Hollywood now of blaming Rotten Tomatoes for movies doing bad. <laughs> it's like no, that was actually just a terrible idea, or maybe people are sick of the franchise. But then, but then when the a movie like it comes at night which gets like 90% Rotten Tomato scores and doesn't really work at the box office. It's not about, it's just like, it's like, well, why isn't everybody going to see it because of the Rotten Tomato score? And I'm not knocking the movie. I'm just using that as an example of the score has nothing to do with anything. People are either going to see it or they're not. And it's just about what's in the air. And if it's a movie, people want to see at that moment in time. And some movies are seen instantly and others like Big Lebowski wasn't a box office hit. Fargo, I mean, people Fargo found took it a while, but people like- found Lebowski, you know, Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me. There's a lot of movies that, you know, you know, not everything was Pulp Fiction. Some movies like slowly over time developed a cult following. But in terms of what you're saying about instant gratification, there is a whole thing now with like kind of generation iPhone that everyone gets their movies instantly, their music instantly. It's interesting because what I've seen is kind of, I had a hard time finding an assistant for a while because I think what happens is the kids sort of want their careers instantly. And you want to be a director instantly, you want to be a producer instantly. And the truth is you can, you can shoot stuff and put it online now. And for some people that actually works. Like they can be 22, 23, making their videos and they have a huge following. And that's what's exciting about it. But I also think that you do miss something that it is, you know, you have to enjoy the journey. It is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And that there are certain benefits to waiting and earning things over time and not having success too fast. I mean, look, at Hostel hit at 32. And at the time, I was like, God, I can't believe it. I'm, I'm already so behind. Sam Raimi was 21 when we made Evil Dead. And geez, or I'm, I'm like, you know, 34. I was 32. It was 34 when it came out. I was like, oh, God, I got to. I'm like falling gotta behind everybody. Gotta yeah. be, it's like it's, you're getting this crazy race. And now I look at kind of 45 and think, wow, if I, if I had the Hostel success now I do things so differently than what I did, but it's um, 
I don't know. It's like you have to enjoy it. Look, one thing that you and I have always done is that we've always like done what we loved and had a fun time. But I remember when when I first moved out here, it was like you being on the WB show was like he's never gonna have to work. He's never gonna have to work again in his Which is, life. Was not true. You, the WB but, pays the 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 least out of all the. Uh, but I have to say, like, but still, it's I'm not. But I want to say not, this about Rosenbaum. You were by far like the most generous friend. Like there were so many people. Like out of our group of friends, we all sort of migrated around 98, 99. Like everybody moved to LA from New York at the same time. So there was this huge gang of us. Yeah. And we would all go bowling. And like we were all kind of working. Everyone was hustling. But you were on a TV show. And you were on like it was Zoe Duncan, Jack Zoe, and Jane. Zoe Duncan, Jack, Jack Jane, and Jane. George. George, Frank. Yeah. But at the bowling alley, like you got recognized. You were going to events. You were the first one out of any of our friends to rent a house with a pool. And always. And rats in the bath, bathroom. Rats in the, in the, remember that? <laughs> yes, I do yeah. remember that. But you had They're arcade nice. machines. But it was like we would go bowling. And then we'd go back to your I house. I was the Silver Spoons kid. You were the Silver you, you were Sch- <laughs> Schroeder. You were Schroeding in a big way. It's like Galaga. Yeah, that's yeah, what it was. But Still you, in the basement. But you were the one that as soon as you made money, shared it with everybody. Like, you would treat us to bowling when we couldn't afford it. You'd have everyone at the house. And I'll never forget that. Like, that is such a testament to your character and to who you were that, like, when you got that success, which was more than any of us had ever seen or known, it was like you were on a television show, which was the biggest deal. The first thing you did was, like, constantly inviting everyone to dinner over at your house and sharing. Like, I'll never forget that. I'll always think of you that way and love you that way it's like that's incredibly it's true it's like it's like that's who you are like other people would get successful and you never hear from them again or still make you pay to show that they're not like (laughs) but you know what you know what you say that and i really appreciate that it means it really does touch my heart and i i have always been like that my grandmother ruth god rest her soul she was always inviting everybody in the house and she had money and she you know at the time she was like on the on the world book encyclopedia the board of world book encyclopedia Uh for women which was a huge thing and she was making a lot of money and she would always have people in the house sleeping there her parents stayed there her her husband's parents, they all, everybody stayed there. She ordered food. She always entertained. She just loved being around her friends and her family. And I, I got that from her. And I really, I just love being around my friends. And what's weird though, is there's something, I got to figure it out in therapy, Eli, that the success I have, it's, it's this weird thing where I talk about it, where it's not like I don't think I deserve it, but it's that weird thing where I never feel like, even though I'm on a show or if I'm doing something... I'm telling you, this is. I need your dad, yeah. psychoanalyst, because I always feel like when people talk about it, I almost get embarrassed by it. It's yeah. weird. As as cocky and confident as I can seem by a lot of people, my friends, and like the leader of the gang, and we're going to the beach this week, and it's like Swartz and them, we're all going to the beach. Sure. So I just feel like, uh, you know, I'm like, no, no, no. I, I I feel weird talking about that. Like, oh, yeah, is that, you know what I'm saying? No, I do. No, but there's, it's, there's also a thing where, Maybe it's because we're Jewish and we're supposed <laughs> the to guilt. feel the guilt is, of like, why am I doing? Why am I successful? God, I shouldn't our, be successful. We I should, should be working at the grocery we, store. We still. should be in an oven in Poland. Like there is that thing of like, <laughs> you I'm, went dark. You just did it. But you it's went real. dark. But it's real. It is fucking real. I'm yeah. sorry. There no. is there is a thing that you I grew think you're up right. I think because you're right. our parents were probably five and six years old, and my, my parents now are 75, 76. Like or 77. Like they were six years old when World War II ended, so they grew up. With people coming back from the camp, and you had tattoos. family in the Holocaust. Yeah, but like the, their relatives, not like right. immediate family. Like like my parents, my grandma, like their aunts, their yeah. uncles. There was like sides of the family that never came out of there because it was all Austria, Hungary, Russia, Poland. That was where my my grandparents all came from. So all I heard about growing up, like from my grandmother, from my mom, from the aunts, were just like 
you know, finish your food. You could have been in an oven in Poland. And like learning about the Holocaust, <laughs> wow. would, they were like, never buy a Mercedes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Because, yes. you know, fuck don't it. use Bayer aspirin. And <laughs> anything, <laughs> <Wasn't> it? <laughs> anything that was German <laughs> right. in the 70s, I was traumatized. And then after going for Inglorious Bastards and living in Germany, I, I brought my parents over there. I was there too. It's beautiful. Amazing. My parents were like, thank God you got us here because we got rid of all that shit. Yeah. Not that we forgot it. But this hatred and anger and this feeling that we're sure. doing something wrong for so I started driving a BMW, like start buying like just to show that this has changed, we've changed, let's let's move on. But there is a thing where when you have success in some way, it's so much of it, it's talent, but it is luck and right and persistence. And you think like, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it. And then you're like, oh fuck, this happened. Why am I? and and other yeah. people look at you and they're like, fuck that guy. And then there's another thing you feel of you always feel like your friends are like 10 steps ahead of you. Like you look around, you're like, fuck, they're like, oh man, what am I doing wrong? They're doing this. I should be doing that. I should be doing that. And the truth is that everyone's on their own path. Everyone's got their own thing to do. And the thing is, if we wanted to be doing those things, we probably would have, you know, there's like, there was a moment after Hostel where I was like, it was the big studio movies, Marvel movies, all that stuff. And I was like, I kind of just want to do Hostel too. I don't think I'm ready for this i don't know if sure. i want to like there's that fear i was like it was fear but it was also like i've made two movies that i wrote directed produced i have total control of this and i'm like financially set so why would i not why now yeah. that i've worked so hard to be in a position where i'm a voice why would i want to execute so and now That's i'm rare. like it's rare and now i'm like okay i did five movies that were like my voice and i'm like i love directing i want to shoot so let me see how it is with someone else's script making it my own, like Death Wish, which comes to me. And I was like, yeah, I'll do this. I had the best time. I loved it. And I want to get into all that because yeah. I, I do. I, I feel like what you're, just to touch a little more on on that, I think with me, the guilt also, I won't blame the Holocaust exactly. But yes, I know what you're saying. Yes. saying I'm just, but my father was like 1420 SAT. He was uh, a guy who woke up at 5 a.m. to deliver papers and then went to work and uh, never missed a day of work and let me know about it. Oh, and yeah. busted his ass oh, and was God, the manager yeah. of his plant and this, and this work my ethic. The same. And I just felt like... I forget that I was like, without thinking, hey, you're you're just really good at this, so you should. Fi-. I felt like uh, he's like, yeah, what do you do? You go act. You see some lines into a camera. This is what you do. That's a job. What are you doing today? Sitting around. And then, so and then I, the- I felt like I think that part of me was like, yeah, but then I work really hard when I do do a movie. Yeah, what, what do you do? You sit on set, do take after take, and then have a lunch, and someone pampers you. I feel like that. Look, I'm making my dad sound like a dick. He was a dick. He was a total dick. But, I mean, I love him a dick. Yeah. But I think that was sort of it, too. It was sort of like, you know, uh, this is kind of fun. Because what we do is great, but I don't think people understand how difficult it is. That's because there's nothing about it that if you say what you do is difficult, immediately the middle finger comes up. Like, there's you can't there's, do there's it, nothing. You can't do it. Oh, and I don't know. We had a 14-hour day yesterday. The truth Fuck is, you. The truth is, it's not difficult. What's difficult is... In between work, the struggle to get there, doing the work itself is exhausting. Yeah. And it's tiring when you put your heart and soul into it, but it's not hard. I mean, it's hard to outdo yourself. It's hard to challenge yourself creatively. But what we're doing is something that we love. And most people, to pay the bills, put food on the table, have to go and do a job. Now, they can get into that job. Some people are lucky enough to enjoy their job. Every job has problems, but most people aren't getting to get up and play in the movies and like what we do is amazing like you can't so as soon as you say 
it's really hard. It's like when people say making the film was a battle or making it was war. It's like, nah, it really wasn't. You were, it was all pretend. I don't know. I don't know if I agree with you there. I think that even though it is pretend, there are days where I, I directed my first movie back in the day, sure, like a couple years ago, and I made it for nothing. And there were days where I, I honestly felt sick to my stomach. Days at a time where I felt like I want to get on the next plane and get the hell out of here yeah. and never look back. I, I'm, moments where I just I was, but that's I was clueless. I was lost. And it really, it was it was scary. It was exhausting. And so I'm not going to say it's a cakewalk. I think we... No, it's very, it's very hard. And that's why very few people can do it. Because the challenge is... How do you deal with when nothing goes right? So many moving wrong. pieces, right? So many moving pieces. So much money on the line. Everyone looking exactly. at you. Everyone you do, and now make it this natural. Guy's and make it great. He's dropping the ball. And so getting second guess. How do you not lose your fucking cool at people? And I tell people when, like, they're like, "What should I go to film school?" Have you, by the way, have you ever flipped out on someone? I usually flip out once a movie. Once a movie. Yeah. Is that by choice? No, I just I sort of like <laughs> it happens, and I try, I try to prevent it from happening. Um, I'm not a screamer on set. I'm like very clear with what I want. But if what what sets me off is when I ask for something two or three times and I know that someone's being passive aggressive. People make mistakes. People get exhausted. It's a lot of information. Things get done wrong. But when I know that I've specifically discussed, you are not going to do it this way. You're going to do it that way. And they go ahead and build it a certain way because they think they either know better or they're not going to listen to me. I either go crazy or I just fire them. And that's every single movie. And you have to be a general. And you have to show that nobody is safe. Anybody, doesn't matter who you are, if you're not doing your job, you're gone. And they have to respect the director. And if they, and you got to earn that respect. But if they're not respecting you, you fire them. You just get rid of them. Or you do the job themselves. It's like, there's no, you can't, it's like, you have to look like at the big picture. That is, you know, protect the queen. Like, it's like David Lynch says, I on the donut, not the whole. The donut is the movie. The hole is all the other bullshit you get sucked into. And well, he's right. Yeah. You know, there's a famous story about uh, Kevin Costner when he was filming um, Dances with Wolves. You know that story? Day one, they're like, he can't fucking direct. He's not going to, you know, he, this is an actor. He's going to direct a movie. And day one, finally he got the budget. Everybody's like, okay, we're behind you. And he shoots the shot. It's the opening. It takes three or four hours to get, you know, to yeah. set this up. And he realizes it's the wrong direction. They can't, for some reason, he... So he thought right then, I'm going to look like an absolute fucking idiot and people are just going to look at me like you fucking suck. And, you know, and I could, you know, if I do this, if I just redo the shot and do it somewhere else, or it was one of those decisions yeah. that you, that make you, you know, a director yeah. defines who you are. I could, I could just say, okay, we're going to the next shot. Now we got that. What did he do? He said, no, we just wasted five, six hours. I think it was a half day. The first day, this is all wrong. We have to turn around and do it this way. I just read about it. And, and, wow. And the whole crew looked at him and go, they just looked at him like, you fucking, what are we in for in this? Fun? And he felt horrible. He felt like it was this numbing thing. I think we all know that feeling when we're yeah, doing yeah. the wrong thing or we yeah. can't, you know, because we're not, we're not perfect. And he did. He set up the, the, the next shot, took three or four hours the other way to set it up. And he did it. And he did it. And um, he said that was the day, that day when, that was the decision. If I wouldn't have done that, I don't think it would have, that movie wouldn't have done what it did. Yeah. And it was just balls. You have to just, you have a vision. You have to follow it. You have to have blind, you have, I mean, the thing is you got to like listen to the people around you. It's this fine line of listening to people you trust, but also being 100% certain that that thing in your, you got to trust your instincts. And there's a reason they put you in charge. And if people aren't going to like it, people are going to get mad. People are going to second guess. You cannot care. You're not there to please them. You're there to make a great movie. That's important. And you have to be organized 
and you have to be open and flexible to seeing what's in front of you. But that, that I've had those moments on cabin fever. I remember how cabin fever, I cast an actor named Michael Rosenbaum yes. to play the role of Justin. Yeah, okay? I want to talk to you about this. This Eli. is what happened. This is Let's my this, this is my Dance with Wolves moment. Right. So Rosenbaum and I are obviously we're we're friends and like really close. And I finally get the money for Cabin Fever. And it's like a big deal that like I'm finally directing. It's like you're making that jump from being the guy that talks about being a director right. to finally directing. I was probably twenty nine and I got the money and I was going to shoot it in October. And that summer you booked Smallville. Smallville. And you're like, I'm going to play Lex Luthor. And I was like, okay, I think I can shoot this in two days. And you called me and you were like, dude, th- that show was a cultural phenomenon. It wasn't like a hit TV show. This is before internet, before, I mean, we had email, but before social media. Before Twitter and all before that. Before Twitter and all of That's that. That's why I only have 125,000 yeah. followers, Eli. <laughs> well, yeah, we should have <laughs> If we if we were famous now, um, oh, if Twitter was out now, but then Smallville was the biggest deal, and you were like, I literally, you're like, you don't understand. I can't. It's not just yeah. that I can't get on a plane to do this. They have every single spare minute. You were now being on the cover of magazine, and I was like, dude, this is your moment. Like your career is so much bigger than like we got a long career, and so then I cast someone else that I'd seen in a commercial, and they just weren't getting it. Like I'd written it for you. And I'd written it with this with you in mind. Nougat, the nougat. No, that was that was well, that was yeah, Jimmy DeBell. Well, there was a few things that I wanted you to do, but I wanted you to be Bert. And then I, you're like, you couldn't be Bert. I was like, okay, you'll be Justin, and then you'd be Justin. And then I remember I cast this actor, and I'd read it in rehearsals, and the cast was loving it, and they this actor was not getting it, and I, I we shot with him until lunch and at lunch I fired him and after lunch I was in the Justin makeup and I came out and I reshot the scene and the whole Jeez crew this us. is like day 4 the whole crew was like oh what the fuck are we in for this egomaniac just fired an actor and is doing it and even like dances with wolves moment and it was that moment because I'll tell you the cast supported me the crew was not into it they're like Eli you're not funny this isn't it do you know who fucking thought that was the greatest? Quentin Tarantino. He thought me, my acting in that movie, loved me so much he put me in Death Proof and then Death Proof's got yep. me in Glorious Bastards. It was that moment that led to Inglorious Bastards. And I did it. And it was one of those things where I knew I could do it. I was like, not me, but then we showed That's it to insane. like a test audience and they loved it. So it was just one of those things where my being on camera was like, I knew I could do it. I tried with you. I tried with this other actor, but it was that defining moment of, do I not want to hurt this guy's feelings and have a really weak scene that I'm probably going to go cut? Or am I just going to say, I don't care what anyone fucking thinks. I'm going to act in this. And I did. And it, I mean, this was like, That's, we're shooting on yeah. 35 millimeter. It was a million and a half dollars. Some guy had put up his house for the movie. It was like people risked a lot for that film. And I remember, but that was that dance with old moment. You're just like, this is going to make it or break it. Yeah, you by the way. Care. Yeah. And then. You see like a little Asperger-y about it. Yeah. They just like not care what people think. Just it, like, it, I, know I right. think that is so important, and especially in this business. If you could just zone out and not listen to, I mean, obviously you surround yourself with good people, positive people. That's people. the key. Yeah. It's the key. I weed out the bad. You just, if they're bringing you down, they have nothing to offer, or they're not fun to be around, fuck off. I just can't. I know. I'm getting too old for this shit. I want people who like support me, who are, I support them. They're fun. Um, so, Hostel, 
again, the Smallville thing. I remember you called me. I was at the airport, and you go, hey, can you fly to Czech Republic or whatever? And I couldn't fucking do it, and I wanted to fucking do it. I, I remember telling you at the airport. I was in the Burbank airport, and I go, I pissed Eli off. Now I've, I, I couldn't do two fucking movies for him, and now he thinks that, oh, I'm too big for my pants. But I always felt like I know he feels that when I want to support him, I want to be part of his movie. I want to be part of that. And I just always wanted you to know that I felt so bad. It wasn't, you know, because it was different. I had to f- film in Vancouver. I, I was out. I was literally, the first three, four seasons were just, it took me three hours to Dude, shave my head and I, my balls. Listen, <laughs> no, first of all, I ne- I thought the opposite. I oh, good, thought, good. I actually thought, and I would never ask you this or ask you to say anything, because it was, the show was such a great show. And when it came out, it was like the thing of the moment. Sure. And you're like, I'm going to be bald for the next seven years. I'm going to be Lex Luthor. I remember when Hostel happened, and you. Which, by the way, I that's one of my favorites. Anybody ever asked me about Hostel? I'm like, that movie to me is just like I was so so proudy and so thank you. So just amazed because it it really that movie just it's it's gripping. It's intense. It's nonstop. It was just to me, it was incredibly original. Thank you. Go ahead. Well, that was that was where I felt like this is what I can really do. Like Cabin Fever was like this is you give me no money. And a very limited scope, and we'll pull something together that's really fun. But yeah. Hostel's like, and again, we did it for three point eight million dollars. By the way, Cabin right? Fever made like eighty million worldwide. It did great, yeah. And so did Hostel. But first, which is the, oh, the best thing and worst thing that can happen because then you're like totally confident. You're like, see, my ideas work. Like, right, right. you know, it's actually great. But it sort of, in a way, is like it leads you. I don't know, whatever the the universe points you in whatever direction you're supposed to go. I'm a big kind of believer in that. Thanks to therapy as well. Um, <laughs> I thought I'm not in any rush. I thought, you know what? We can do this, but if the timing isn't right, if he's on this show, we're both on our own path. Yeah. We'll find the right one. Absolutely. Like, like we're both are going to have long career. Like I still feel like my career is just beginning. I feel like your career That's how I feel is too. just beginning. Like we, we everything We've else is like only just begun. It, it just feels like freshman year's over. We went through it. Now we're like, okay, this is now life can start. So I, I never thought that way. I never thought pissed off. I just, I'm glad. I, I'm glad. I knew you were on the show. I always wanted you to know that, like, you were my go-to guy first before anyone else. And that, and, like, and, I, and I was so honored. And I was just like, I remember telling like Lally and my buddies, I was like, yeah, I, I'm so honored. Like, I, I know he's going to be like this huge thing. And they're just like, I, can't, I couldn't. I had no life for ten months a year. You were I up know, there for. I know. You know and so and this I'm, is I'm when, glad we got that. You know, in the clear. Yeah, but also people, it's it's hard to explain. Television now is ten episodes. You now know, it do, is. Yeah. Now, now it you is. can do movies. Now you can do movies. Yeah. And back then, if you were on a TV show, it was twenty. You were locked 20, in for six. I, I had. I was. I was Lex Luthor for seven years. There were a couple little roles here and there, but I was usually wearing bad wigs. I had. No, that was it. I was just Smallville you for were. seven years. So in the last six, seven years, that's been done. That's like pretty much my career starting over. Oh, like for sure. Hair because, growing out. Yeah, was, because also you have when you have a two month window, you're basically sleep. looking. You're either asleep. <laughs> Or you're going, what movie, what is a movie that shoots in six weeks that's right for me that I can do between this? Yeah. So the movies that you do aren't necessarily the top choices of movies you'd want to do, or you do smaller parts in big movies with directors you want to work with. So I remember when it was like, you know, when Hostel and that kind of stuff was happening, you have that moment, everyone's going, get Michael Rosenbaum. It's like, he's not available. So it's a very tough thing for you because you sort of have all the fame and you have all the heat, but- to do those, so like get to be in the Scorseses and the Finchers and that, it's just not going to work out with your shooting schedule. Yeah. And you're getting noticed because of Smallville. But now, and then at the show's such a hit that now people only think of you as that. It's really, really difficult. The first thing I did once the show ended, like 2009 or whatever it was, I said to my agent, get me general meetings. They're like, what? 
general meetings are like, yeah. you know, set me up with casting directors for every studio and network and whatever. They go, why, why do you? I go, because I want them to see me with fucking hair, dude. I, know. I want them to see them. I want them to see me. I'm not this weird, eccentric billionaire. You know, I yeah. want them to see who I am. And that really helped just going in like most actors when they're just starting out to go in generals. Hey, this is the cast. I, I go, no. I it's like I'm starting you need to over. reintroduce that's yourself. what I had to do so um I want to talk about you you made a hundred films before high school well they're all sure I mean I think about how that long now. Were they? I mean they were like somewhere like two minutes five minutes like did I, you use your family all the time my brothers yeah I would just, I basically if you start from the time you're I mean I started at eight years old with a super eight camera nine with a super eight camera I remember in fifth grade I had like a retrospective of my animated films the kids were like what the hell I brought in my super eight projector and they're like it's the Eli Roth retrospective my, oh my, my kids God. were like you made that it was like and what does that mean Star Wars action figures fighting He-Man figures stop motion drawn claymation stop frame animation and then I got a video camera and every we'd shoot parodies we'd shoot news stuff we'd shoot so what were you I learning was, all this shit? Just figuring it out. You just figured it out. Just figured it out. There was a, it was it was reading Fangoria. Oh and it yeah. Was, you know I have like a hundred episodes, a hundred issues in there. Yeah, if you want any, you can have some. Quentin has my Fangoria. He has my Fangos right now. He goes like, "Hey, can I borrow your Fangorias?" I'm like, all sure. of them? Well, yeah, he's they're like at his house. They're they're great. They're great. The old interviews. Like, oh yeah. They get really good people. Oh, like yeah. David Lynch is a good interview, and there's. I have all the motel hell that I thought I, I made it when I was in Fangoria when they interviewed me for Urban Legend. I was like, yes, dude, Fangoria. you being in Urban Legend was a huge deal. That was fun. That was a fun that was movie. a that was, huge. Deal that was when fun. that came out. That was we great. Had, and I got to work with uh, Brad Dorf. Yep, I have the photo I of you dead him. on the toilet that you gave me. Do you? That. You yeah. still have that? I still have that You're photo. so sweet. So you went on. To do like all the, I mean, I remember you showing me like when you came out to do like chowder heads and yeah, no, rotten fruit and it all stemmed from all that. All my animation. Yeah. Well, I'd done animation. I was pitching everything. I, I had Cabin Fever written, but the stuff I wound up getting was the animated shows. Chowders, which is originally called Mass Holes until someone right. learned it had the word assholes in it. But we did it for WCW Wrestling. It, they were going to be like the Simpsons on Nitro. Tracy Ullman. Yeah, and they were going to yeah, run yeah. it. And then the CE, they, they were supposed to air on a Monday. They announced it on a Friday. We had the... CEO got fired over the weekend. I remember that. I remember and we, were, my, and we you, sat at your house for three yeah. hours watching, and it didn't come on. And I it was remember. Like, and I just felt bad I made everyone sit through three hours of wrestling. It was like, what happened with your shows? Like, I, I don't know. I fucking remember that. And, and it wasn't horrible. like, and we were all like, what the fuck? We put all this stuff. We had isn't watched all the episodes. You put all that hard all work do, into it. And those nothing. Fun. It's out of your control. Totally. A studio it's not can meant say to be. no. And it's done. It's like Mulholland Drive when you got to go see the cowboy at the ranch and whisper the password and your movie's back on. It's like the forces that are with you or against you, there's nothing you can do I about it. I think it's it. a lot of ego too. I think a lot of these people that like somebody gets fired and the new guy comes in and goes, that's not my work. Well, yeah. I'm not part of that. So because, I'm going to show you. It's but, so fucked. But imagine if you're in that job and you come in and there are these four other things and you agree to air it and it's a big hit, then they're like, why'd we fire that guy? Right. So it's sort of like you have to. You have to show, well, the reason they're bringing me in is because everything else this other guy did is terrible. So anything he touched has this poison. Get rid of it. But not chowder heads. Not chowder heads. I know. And then from that, I was able to at least get money for Rotten Fruit, and which we was Z.com was like the big thing that was I love the Rotten website. Fruit, too. Thank you. It was fun. There's a couple of them. I remember, I remember watching everything. At my we own. watched them out because I was shooting them. That Hill was Slope. Like, I used to live in Hill, Stru Hill Slope Street in Studio City, California. And Eli and I, we'd play guitar. We'd play Gordon Lightfoot. By the way, at the end of this podcast, I want to just play a little Gordon Lightfoot. Can I tell you and something? I want you to sing with me. Gordon Lightfoot is playing tomorrow night in Pasadena. He goes on at nine o'clock at the Rose Theater. He's almost eight years old. I can't go. I have a birthday party to go. Do you to. want me to like my brothers, live? My brothers are going. Are they? And there's apparently it's not sold out. 
guys, Gordon Life, if you haven't, he goes on at night. Gordon is the greatest rock. I mean, folk singer. This guy is the greatest. I don't know how much longer he's going to be with us. I saw him 15 years ago. Topher Grace went with me, not to drop a drop a name. Yes, uh, we went, and he he goes, I don't know who this is, and he went, and we sent front row. And Gordon then looked like he could go at any minute. Yeah. And, and I was like, wow, still he's going. still fucking going, dude. Tomorrow night in Pasadena. Gordon Life in Pasadena. My brothers are going. Jesus I had a ticket. Ass. I had a birthday uh, You, uh, I didn't know this. You were a cyber sex operator for Penthouse Magazine posing as a woman to pay for your movies? I was a fucking fantastic cyber okay, sex operator. Okay, this is how fantastic. I was, I was I, really good. Okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to be, really, a, I'm going to be calling, I'm calling you right now. I want, I, I want you to, you just go. All right, yeah. so. If you're on a telephone. I'm on a modem. I'm on an 800 baud modem. Remember, like when a dial-up was fifty-six thousand, this was 800, 800. So they gave me a computer terminal before I knew what a modem was, and you plug. It was a huge, heavy thing <laughs> that you plugged into your phone lines. Your phone was busy, and between six God. to ten or six to midnight, I would sit there and they would type and be like, blink, and there were ads in penthouse. Come sign up, and it was. We were very reasonably priced, fifty cents a minute. People would be on for hours. Okay, and there so were you're, different you're, you're a liar. You're posing as a woman. Oh, yeah. Guys are jerking off to yeah. you. Yes. So, this, for instance, I'd be like, hello? And I'd be like, hi. Well, give me your voice. I, it wasn't a voice. I was typing it on the keys. It and, was like old, like, I, like the computer in Alien. It was that level of text. It was only text. Oh, it was only text. It was text messages. And what's the dirtiest thing you said? I would sit there with like 20 guys in my room and, and there were different things where my there were like, God. I had different personas. I was Mireille, the beautiful 22-year-old bisexual French girl who couldn't understand why she kept getting arrested for sunbathing topless in Central Park. Then I was Tammy, who was like a heavy metal. She had gotten like gangbanged by Guns N' Roses and already, fucked everyone. I'm already jerking off. I was just like, oh, Allison with a Y who had just gotten divorced and she was looking for characters for her novel, but she was really bad at it. So guys loved it. They're like, oh, Allison, I can't defile you. I'm too respectful. And I'd be like, no, please talk about my my breasts. And they're like, oh, you say breasts and not tits. It's like, And then I'd be like, yeah, fucking come in my face. Come in. And guys were like, and then what You happened? really thought about these things. This is how I wrote characters and dialogue. I'm telling you, I was 19 <laughs> and 20. Like, I was so good. I got so... My parents saw me. They're like, how are you so fast at typing? Wait I could, a minute. Wait, they knew what you were saying? No, they were, They saw me. Like I was like... Oh, okay. I'd be like at my dad's computer. I'd be like, give me that. I'd be like... How typing, are you typing? Come on my you, face so fast. I'm typing 200 words a minute. So I would sit there and like with all the people in the dorm, they'd be like... I'd be like, come here for I'm like, no, no, no. He hasn't earned it yet. He hasn't earned it yet. I'm like, you got to try harder. These guys, one guy started the, – the, the customers would fall in love with you because this was a new thing. No one – these are like doctors and lawyers. The people that were on the internet at the time were like wealthy professional people who were very lonely. And they were – they would start – one of the guys started FedExing cash to one of the other kids to his dorm room at NYU because our whole thing was like my real name is, is Alice – and I have to go back. I really have a kid. I got to go back to being a stripper. I can't do this anymore. They're like, do not leave. Do not leave. They're like, I'm sorry. I'm quitting. They're like, I'm in love with you. I'll subsidize you. And one guy started getting cash dropped off at his dorm room at NYU. It was four dudes that were doing it. And the best part was me and my friend Bob, the last night, we quit. We were, it was over and we had to turn in our terminals the next day. And remember this like this woman who had like these weird, really thin black Virginia Slim cigarettes. You'd like drop it off at her house. It was all like super shady. And the last night we went on and all the guys, we logged in as like Tammy and our girls. And they were all like, what are you wearing? And we're like, okay, we got to tell you something. We're guys. Penthouse only hires guys 
because they know that only a guy can come up with what another stupid shit that's sick enough for what another guy wants to hear. So that's why there's only men pretending to be women. My God. We have dicks. And the guy goes, ha ha, shut up, Tammy. Tell me about your tits. And we're like, no, we're serious, dude. And they're like, you are so funny, me, right? Like, we're like, no, we're actually, we're guys. We're dudes. We're like doing this out of a dorm room. We're not fucking with you. And they're like, ha ha, oh my God, Allison, you're like, they wouldn't believe it. And it's just like, who would want to believe that? Who would want to? Because what? You've just spent thousands so and thousands of dollars. My parents are like, this is so immoral. Cut to two years later, AOL starts. And then everyone is like doing it. I was, I was the original catfish. In 1994, you directed Restaurant Dogs at NYU. 93. December of 93. Nominated for a Student Academy Award. Much to the chagrin of my professors. They couldn't believe it. At, at, at the festival, it was the total audience. It was Ronald McDonald's gang on a killing spree. You can see it on, on Crypt TV, my digital really? channel. Yeah, I put it out there. Um, and it's uh, it was totally silly and insane. I tried to violate as many copyrights as I could because everyone's like, you need to clear music. I was like, this isn't going to play on television, guys. This is like – so. but we did it. And then what was great was 1995, the word alternative started because it was alternative music. Right. Alternatives – everything was alternative, alternative rock. Alternative rock. So they started an alternative category, and I was animation, live action, color, black and white. It was like 10 minutes of Monty Python violence, and we won. And the professors were like, well, I, I was like, yep, I got my student Oscar. Ceremony at the Museum of Modern Art. The fuck, the other kids in class were like, that motherfucker with the stupid Ronald McDonald movie. It was great. Because everyone in film school was so pretentious. Not everyone, but a lot of the kids were like, everyone's making movies about the Holocaust. I mean, make Holocaust jokes. Like making only a Jew about, can do that. Only a Jew can do it. Like, yeah. like making movies about Schindler's List and people with tattoos and flashbacks to war and I'm gonna, they're like, I'm going to cure homelessness in a student film. So they'd go and like film the like grunge roommate sort of walking around near a homeless person and cut it to, where the streets have no name. It was like <laughs> the adventures of teenage homeless man, we called it. It was like every student film. And mine was just like, you know, Hamburglar getting his eyes stabbed out and Mayor McCheese being decapitated. I wanted to do like, you know, Monty Python had this sketch of Sam Peckinpah's salad days where arms and legs are ripped off. I was like, that's what I want to do. I was like, what more do you want to see? Than that, I just want to see like arms getting ripped off and people like blood splurting. That was all I wanted. And the professors, they almost didn't pass me. They were like, this is not, and I graduated with like the highest grades, but I remember showing that student film, a lot of the faculty members were like, we can't allow this. And my, my professor stuck up for me and was like, this fucking guy's doing what he wants. Like, yeah. And the audience loves it. Like, and they'd God say, what's your, what's your message? I was like, my message is maybe people just like to be entertained for 10 minutes. And 10 minutes was short. Kids would make 45-minute student films shot on film. They're awful. It was like nobody knew. Wow. So it's fun. I'm one of the few, I think it's like me and like maybe one or two others in my class who are actually directing. Ever, and, Who's and, the other guy? Well, I see Andres Hines wrote Black Swan, has made a couple films. Um, Todd Phillips was like half a year ahead of I remember him being a year ahead of me, but I think he's like technically graduated in my class or half a year ahead of me. So he was dumb? Um, what's that? He was dumb, graduated, but. It take him four years. How many years? No, he was. No, he was. <laughs> I don't know. No, Todd was a brilliant. No, he's by the way, brilliant. can I tell you something? Even in NYU, Todd was a legend. He really? was because Todd was making a movie about Gigi Allen, the punk rocker. Yeah, and kids were coming up being like, someone in, doc, in Christine Choi's documentary class is showing footage of a guy eating his own shit and throwing shit. Like, and then he produced Jesus. this movie. He produced a movie called Chicken Hawk about like a pedophile. And Todd dropped to the New York Post. Woody Allen was seen going to a screening of 
of Chicken Hawk. And then he did a screening. This is Todd, did a screening of the movie. And he invited to the screening Nambla and the Boy Scouts of America. The North American Man-Boy Love Association and the Boy Scouts. He invited them both. He sent official letters to both groups saying, we'd like to invite you to the screening. And then called the New York Post. Like, that's Todd. That's in film school. That's like with a student film. He wanted to be a legend. Todd, he was a legend. It's not even to try to be a legend. It was like... That's Animal House shit. Todd, it was. And you watch this documentary, Frat House and the stuff you like, 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 like the hangover, Todd Phillips, War Dogs, it is no accident. In film school, everyone's like, this guy is a fucking genius. I met him for, with, I auditioned for The Hangover and I went in the room with him and I auditioned. He goes, great audition. And I go, thanks. He's like, yeah, no, I'm really impressed. You're really great. And I go, thanks. He goes, but you, uh, we already have that role. Bradley Cooper's playing that role. You're not right for this role. And I go, okay, thanks. <laughs> I left. He was totally honest. I loved it. I love him. He was just so brutally honest. No, I love like, Todd. Great. You did great. I we already him. cast that part. I love Todd. I remember when my agent sent a script and I was like reading stuff and I was directing and I and I read The Hangover and I called my agent and like Todd Phillips is producing this. He thinks you'd be right for it. And I read it and I was like, this is the best script I've ever read. He goes, yeah, Todd thought the same. He's directing it. But <laughs> nice to be asked to dance. I was like, thanks. Bye. So wait, so on a scale from one to 10. What scale? What what number were you in terms of Quentin Tarantino fan? Like back in ninety, like a thousand, what, a thousand. I not only did I I saw Reservoir Dogs, and I was in such complete awe. I saw it in the theaters. How many times have you seen it? I mean, it's not it's it's not even that I saw it. It's that I saw it. I had the laser disc that was fucked up. I when we got Macs that could play sound bites, we crashed our computers because we audio recorded it. It's like I did that with like Glengarry Glenn Ross, the Blues Brothers. I audio recorded the movie. You would if there was a movie that you loved so much, you would put a tape player up to the television and then drive it, play it in your I car. Remember. And you're driving to school, and we had Hamburger the Motion Picture. That's why I know Hamburger. Joe the Egan and Jerry Rafferty were a duel yeah. known as Steelers, <laughs> Steelers Wheel. They, Wheel. Yeah, all this stuff from the soundtrack, but like every other, you know, I don't know, shot. I, we're gonna talk to Daddy. I don't know who's dead. I don't know who's live. I don't know who's shot. I don't know who's not. Like all the nice guy Eddie stuff. Well, how about Chris Pence? Like he's just gonna decide. Out of the fucking blue! Out of the fucking blue! Why don't you tell me what really happened? What for? Just be a lot of more bullshit. Lawrence Tierney. Fucking Cabot. It was the best. I'm a cop, Larry. Fucking. I think about it, I get chills. Yeah, and I watched Pulp Fiction two nights ago, and it's like, yeah, that's it's it's flawless. It is fucking flawless. And that's quite it's like that was the first movie. Where the criminals weren't talking about the plot. So I went, I was an RA, a resident assistant, much like Noel on oh, Felicity. Yeah. And I was in charge of my floor. Felicity. And I remember when Film Threat came out with the whole issue on Tarantino Reservoir Dogs, I, I, I was in charge of the theme floor, of the theme of what your floor was. And I decorated my entire floor like Reservoir Dogs, saying, This is the moment. I actually put a whole thing. This is, you know, November 2nd, 1992 is the moment cinema changed. Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs was released. And, and it wasn't a big theatrical hit. It was like it was like what the Babadook is now. People had seen it, but it wasn't like a movie that made a lot of money. And I covered the floor. I dressed up. I got suspenders. I got a straight razor. I went as Mr. Blonde for Halloween. I was so obsessed with this movie that then— Who's Mr. Blonde? Michael Madsen. Michael Madsen, right. Lawrence Bender's sister, the producer Lawrence Bender, his sister Karen Bender happened to be at NYU in my dorm at the time. And she, someone's like, you know that Eli's floor is, direct, is dressed like Reservoir Dogs. And she's like, oh. So she's like, 
she came to my floor and she's like, my brother Lawrence is in the park. He's shooting this movie called Fresh that's shooting. So Lawrence Bender, who produced Reservoir Dogs, was then producing Fresh, directed by Boaz Aquino, I later had a company with Ron Irvin. We produced Hostel together. Lawrence comes to my dorm room when I'm 20. Come on, And he man. sees no, no, the floor. He sees the entire floor is decorated as a shrine to Reservoir Dogs. And he goes, oh, my God, this is so awesome. He goes, I got to get you Quentin's new script. I'm like, really? He's like, his new one, Pulp Fiction, is even better. He gives me the script to Pulp Fiction. He's like, what year make is this? a copy. 90, 93. I'm in my dorm room at NYU. I'm the biggest Tarantino fan in the world. And in my hands, I have Pulp Fiction. And I read it. And I knew the shooting gallery was a reference to the Scorsese documentary, American Boy, that I had. I was like, I read that thing. And I was like, this is poetry. This is going to be. So when Pulp Fiction came out, it was like everyone was going crazy. But for a year, in 93, I had the script. Because Lawrence Bender gave it to me. And then when we were doing Inglorious Bastards, Lawrence would just look at me when I come out with a bat and he's like, fucking you're that he like you're, you're that kid in college. 17, 16 years ago, 15 years ago, you were that fucking nerd in the dorm room Fuck. and look where we are now. And Quentin loved it too. Like Quentin knows. I was like, you gotta boy. understand what that movie was to me. And Lawrence is like, Yeah, no, I went to Eli's dorm room. He had dressed the whole floor like Okay, so dogs. let me this is interesting to me because you do cabin yeah, restaurant fe- dogs, my student film. Right, but you do it. Cabin Fever yeah. years later, and Tarantino says something in in, in uh, some magazine premiere, which premiere. was which at the time mattered. That was the premiere big- magazine. You you hadn't met him yet. No, I had. He'd come and he had seen it and thought it was the greatest thing, and we became friendly. And then in his interview for Kill Bill Two, which was coming out in March of that year, Cabin Fever came out in September. So this was like, you know, it used to wait like six months for home video and it did well, but like Tarantino in his premiere magazine cover story interview, they said, what are the directors you're most excited about? And he said, it's Eli Roth. He's the future of horror. Now, at this point, were you already hanging out with him? I was hanging out with him a little bit. He invited me to his house, but he was also making, he invited me to the editing room. We were, we were friends. We weren't. Now, how does, like, how is it hard? Because I have some friends, like. You know, well, that, it started as that, but it, 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 but it had to, like I, I still, but, like, but you're good friends with them, so that yeah. probably wears off a little. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, like once once you cast, you know, once once you're like obviously you love him and you're in awe of him and respect his work. But the thing about Quentin is, we very very quickly became like family. Like Quentin became like a brother. He was doing Passover at my house. We're going spending Christmas together and thanks. Like like I love him. He became. What happens is, it was interesting, I remember having a conversation with Patty Jenkins, of all people, about this, kind of around hostel time after she did, because we were both, she's Patty's our age, we were both working in New York City production at the time, and we were talking about, after your first film, when you start getting movie offers for stuff you don't want to do, whether it was like, like Dukes of Hazard kind of stuff, you know, mm-hmm. stuff that like, shit, is this what I'm supposed to do now? I remember I got offered like $300,000 to direct that movie. And I was, and I said, no, this is after Cabin Fever. And I remember going to Quentin's house being like, I don't know if I just made the worst, am I supposed to, what am I doing? Like, that's more money than I had ever seen in my sure. entire life. It would have completely gotten me out of debt. And I was like, I just didn't like the script. I didn't feel like I could do anything. And he's like, no, 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 you got it. He goes, do what you love and the money will fall. And I remember Quentin was the only guy that, I could turn to for advice. And Patty Jenkins said something interesting. I'll never forget it. She goes, your peer group shifts. It's not that you ditch your old friends. It's that your friends that are working, you know, shitty jobs or something, you can't have those conversations with them 
because they're not really in a position to give you any advice. Like they're not coming right. from any kind of place of knowledge or strength. Like That's after you get your yeah. television show and Zoe, like what acting do I this? Why that? You're not going to ask your buddy from high school because they're not going to know. You have to ask someone you respect, someone with a career. And they're happy to give that advice because they had someone that was advising them. You know, Quentin's mentor, like his, his like acting teacher mentor was James Best. Roscoe P. Coulter. Oh, my Dukes God. Of Hazzard. So I was thinking, holy shit. So that's the guy that was like giving, you know what I mean? Can you <laughs> he imagine was that? Him advice? Yeah, and teaching him about acting. And like wow. that was like really one of Quentin's like big influences was, was James Best. And, learned, awesome. and study, he studied acting under him and learned directing and acting. Like you'd never think tying in the Dukes of Hazard and Quentin Tarantino, yet there is that going back to Dukes of Hazard, there's a connection. So I think that what happens is like there, there comes a point where I was like, oh, I never want to bother him. Oh, he's busy. But. But Quentin is so open and so generous and so warm and very quickly. And then I introduced him. I remember when I started going on the film festival circuit and I was like, I met this guy, Edgar Wright. You've got to see his movie, Shaun of the Dead. And I arranged a screening at Quentin's house for Shaun of the Dead that like I hosted or Quentin hosted. And we brought all these people there. And I was like, oh, Edgar, you got it. Like I just sort of start being, and then when I met Peter Jackson, like we hung out with Quentin. Like I started being the connector, introducing people and bringing... And then it just sort of crosses over into we made Hostel together and Quentin gave me such good, great advice. Then he came on as producer and then we traveled the world with it. Went, I took him to Iceland. We went here. We went to Sitges together. And suddenly then with Inglorious Bastards and Grindhouse, it's not just that we're making movies together. It's that we're hanging out all the time. He's the only person you want to hang out with because he's the only one that you can kind of understand what you're going through. If you look at his history, through. it's like it, it makes sense that you're friends. Yeah. He's working in a video store and he like, you know, he has just such a knowledge of of, of movies and But honestly, you'd think that we we would all think that, but I think the reason that you and I are friends is cuz you're funny. It's like I think we're funny. Like we love joking around <laughs> and being we? silly and, be, and yeah, I don't people might not find funny. I I, th- I think so. And it's yeah. that. It's like with Quentin, he's fucking funny. Yeah. He's he hilarious. Really and it's just like when you talk to him about life or girls or the world or history or most of the time we're laughing at him. Right. And he's such and a sponge so for yeah. history. Like people see him on interviews talking about movies. People know that's how they know him, but the rest of the time, he's just like that with a million other subjects. It's just movies are always the common go-to, but we'll talk about – it's like anything. So I love it. I have so – I mean, it's crazy. It's like I don't even know how much, how much time we have. Rob, my producer Rob here, by the way, he has a kid. He has a child. Look at him. He looks Let's like start. he's eight years old. He I is talk a about child. This. What the fuck? He just nods. No fucking direction. I have so many questions for you, Eli. Fire. Uh, first of all, do you know um, Lady Gaga? I know who Lady Gaga is. I've never met her. I just actually. would love her on the show. I just thought maybe you knew her. What's that? Are you going to, she come on the show? No, I'd love for her to be in the show. I just want to know if you knew her. No, I heard you. I mean, I know she's a movie fan. I really, <laughs> Inglorious Bastards, did you read for it? He just said, you want to play this role. Well, Quentin, with everything, this whole thing was like, you got to audition. Everyone auditions for me. But then he was auditioning everyone else in town. You know, Seth Rogen, Jonah Hill, anyone that was a Jew was going in on Inglorious Bastards. I don't look. Jewish? You're not Jewish enough. I'm not Jewish enough. Yeah, you don't pass. I have a hairy back. Paul Rust looks way more Jewish than you. Um, and he's he's pretty non-Jewish. Um, well, I, could have, I could have been on the other side. You could have. You really <laughs> could have. Bad guys. Very conflicted character. But Quentin called me, and you know I, he had been reading scenes to me as he was writing it. I was like his Jewish fact checker. He called me. He's like, Eli, what did you... Do you think a Jew would <laughs> offer a Nazi absolution if it meant ending the war? And I said, Quentin, I could be honest with you. I didn't know what that word meant until I was 25. 
I was like, I don't, the concept of absolution is a Catholic. I was like, Jews are moneylenders. We collect interest. We collect interest on everything, including anger. We're more mad about shit from 2,000 years ago today than we were 2,000 years ago. That's just how we are. Not only do we not forget anything, if you asked me if I saw a Nazi, would I forgive them? I would fucking kill them. I would burn them. I would, I would make sure they're Jews. Like, like you got to realize the, the, the Nazis tried to eradicate Jews from the planet. It wasn't like I don't like them. It was a systematic system of death camps. I see that, the bear in you right now. And I was just like, you can't underestimate that. There is no circumstances under which any Jew ever would ever forgive any Nazi. You have to kill all of them. And he's like, whoa, okay, I get it. I get it. And he's like, all right, great. I'm going to go right. And then he had him over at my Passover Seder. We had a bunch of mass holes. And we're like, which, by the way, my assistant thought it was, what's a cedar? Camp Cedar uh, or Cedar. That was Jessica. where I went to overnight camp. Um, <laughs> but, we're, but we're like, dude, man, it's fucking Lila Hazard, dude. Like we were all like kind of doing our fucking mass hole accents, guy. Like, dude, <laughs> where's your fucking matzo, dude? Hide this fucking Afi Coleman fuck. Like we're just doing that. And Quentin was laughing and he's like, I sort of have you in my head as the Boston Jew. He's like, right now you're the guy to beat. And everyone he was auditioning, he didn't tell me this, but he was auditioning them against me. He already, he'd already cast me in his, in his head. And then he's like, wow. And then he was like, but he hadn't confirmed it. It was just like, I hadn't officially gotten the thing. And then he called me. He's like, hey man, we're about to go to Germany tomorrow. Do you want to go get dinner? I'm like, sure. So he picks me up. We go to dinner. He's like, so listen, here's the thing with Donnie. You're going to have to do like, a, you know, it's got to be 360 degree characters. It can't be like Grindhouse. It can't just be like coming and telling a couple jokes. It's got to be like, you got to know this guy like your best friend. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you saying I have the part? He's like, yeah. So listen, you got to do I'm like, shitting your I, go, I go, are you telling me I'm going to be in fucking movies playing the bear juice starring Brad Pitt? He's like, yeah. I'm like, can we have a toast? He's like, yeah, cheers. Listen, you got to fucking do this thing like it's a real. <laughs> I was like, throw it away like it's nothing and you're dying here. Nothing. And I was like, well, look, dude. I'm going to fucking go all in on this. I'm going to be like method actor. I'm going to go build the character. I'm not doing any, like, I, this is too much responsibility. This is too important to me to do anything else. Like, this is my life, is being the wow. bear Jew. I'm going to fucking go to the gym. The only thing I'm going to do 24, I'll do like Daniel Day-Lewis level. Like, whatever those guys do, I'm going to try and do I the best. I have not had that experience yet. Well, I was like, America. I have to. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's status. Yeah, go. I'm going to do it. I was like, this is also important. Like, it's a chance to change the image of Jews in movies. Like, this character, if done right, like, we're all like, it's like the three S's, Seinfeld, Sandler, and Stiller. Like, we're funny. We get the girl, but we're nebbishy, dorky, Woody Allen. Like, that's us. This is a chance to change that, to add to that dynamic. We need, we, this is a chance to be, and I'm going to fucking do Incredible. it. Incredible. And so I was like 40 pounds, I was like fucking lifting. I was so, went back to Boston, got in character, built the character, all that shit. And then I was like, you know, dude, if you need help making the movie, you got another director there. I know you want to make Can, and I know you don't use second unit, but let me know. He's like, no, I never do that. Every shot I do myself. And he called me after two days. He's like, I don't want to deal with this fucking nation's pride chick. Can you come over here and just fucking take care of it? I was like, done. Got on a plane. I was there prepping nation's pride as the director of the black and white movie within the movie. He's like, I'm going to shoot the shot of Melanie saying this is for Germany and Zoller thinking he's like, there's two shots that I'm going to do and everything else. Just get me a battle. I just need, I need enough gunfire to cover up in the theater. And I did 200 shots. My, my brother Gabe came over. We got two cameras. We shot it in Gurlitz where they shot Grand Budapest Hotel in two days, three days. I got him 180 or nearly 200 camera setups for like a five and a half minute full wow. shot on film that I edited while he was doing the tavern scene. So I was pulling double duty. So finally in the last chapter five, I could just act, but it was insane. It was 24 hours. I was up at 4.15 in the morning to be at the gym at 4.30 to fucking lift until quarter to five for the 6 a.m. pickup. And then at the end it wrap, I would have my pre-production meeting on Nation's Pride. It was like fucking insane. But we did it. 
You know, it's funny as I, it, people should know this, but it's based on a true story. I mean, the characters, right? These these were real guys who went in there and risked their lives to stop the Nazis, right? There's a documentary about it. Which one? I don't know. It was the real Inglorious Bastards. It was just on like the History Channel. Well, there's a lot of stories like that, but I haven't seen that. Well, it's, it's called the Real Inglorious Bastards. I just saw it. I was like, "What the hell is this?" Well, there were mean? a lot. It was based on a lot of stuff from history. He said that there was a there was a thing with the Nazis where they'd be like, they'd be like, "You tell us." They get him and get information and be like, "Well, let's bring out, let's put him in with the Jew," and the fucking they'd have one and they'd like let the Jewish guy in the group come out and just fucking tear the other one apart until the other one confessed. Like, that was that was a real thing. There was a lot of... I mean, obviously, a lot of that stuff was real. I wish me shooting Hitler in the face was real. Yeah, but, that would have been beautiful. But the, but it was a real fantasy. I mean, that was one of the... We did that screening for Holocaust survivors. They fucking... They were, like, hugging me after. They're, because even though the movie was fantasy, the fantasy was real. It was a shared fantasy that everyone in the world had. It was the fantasy of being the one to kill Hitler. And that was real. And that was more real than anything that could have happened historically. And not only Jews, yeah, it was pretty much the everybody world. here with the it world. It was the world. They, it wasn't just sure. exclusively Jews. And people were like, there was something about seeing it that struck a chord with people that people just felt like, yeah, that's what I've always, I've always felt that. I've always dreamed of that. It was cathartic. It was amazing. I mean, only Quentin could have pulled that off. I hate, I hate to go to this, but uh, we both really became friends because of one movie. The greatest cannibal, cannibal Holocaust. Holocaust. We bonded over it. I, yeah, we both jerked off to it, but we won't say which scene. We won't say Not which scene. That's one thing we won't talk about. But we did jerk off. It's it's a great movie. It really is. Cannibal inspired Holocaust. both of us. I I remember watching well, Cannibal Holocaust. Green, uh, Green, Green Inferno, Green of course, Inferno, yeah, and Ruggiero Deodato doing a cameo in Hostel yep. too. And um, it's amazing now knowing the director of all of these movies and knowing like Dario Argento oh, and Lamberto Bava and Ruggiero Deodato. They're so nice and so funny. And there's and Lucio Fulci's daughter, Antonella, I'm friends with. Wonderful, sweet, funny. They like they talk about the fucking how like you go back and watch Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man. They're running through the streets of Rome on motorcycles, 200 miles an hour, going over cars. They were just doing that shit. It's amazing that that sort of period of history. Cannibal Holocaust, I saw that movie when I was 19. I was like, I cannot believe that this, uh, I was like, this person's in jail. Like, they've killed people for this movie. This yeah. is like, this is insane. What do they call it? Mondo? Well, there's Ultima Mondo Cannibale. That was his first one, Last right. Cannibal World. Right. Um, starting with Robert Kerman, the professor of Cannibal Holocaust. Too. It's It's really, but then now, and sort of seeing what they did at the time where he was shooting the jungle in Colombia, with like real animals and they were really indigenous oh, people. God. And that's what inspired me to do Green Inferno was I thought you can't do that anymore because every part of the world has already been image mapped and explored. And then I thought, no, there are like a lot, la the last bastion of uncontacted tribes are now being contacted. There's videos on YouTube of it. And then I thought, you know, it's the whole culture of social justice warriors and kids being Twitter activists and slacktivism, just retweeting stuff to look good rather than caring about a cause and getting involved because you want to stream yourself to be seen as a hero, not really knowing anything about it, but just sort of, and then sort of going all in, listening to someone and just thinking and, and sort of feeling guilty about what you already have. So let me just, okay, well, let me just do this bit of activism. Now I can go back to being selfish and living in my own world and enjoying my you know privileges that I have. So it's uh, – and then we went and we shot in an area in Peru. They had never seen cameras before, and there was no electricity, and it was amazing. It was one of the greatest experiences you of my life. You met your wife there. Yeah, we met on Aftershock. 
You met on Aftershock. On Aftershock, and then I wrote The Green Inferno for her. Now you're starting. putting her in everything. You, you put her in Hemlock Grove. Well, Hemlock Grove, well, I did Aftershock, then we did Hemlock Grove, and Hemlock Grove, we did Green Inferno, and then right. Green Inferno, we did Knock Knock. And it, I get the idea that you like to torture her in these movies. Well, we sw- we flipped it because in yeah, Aftershock, she's been through an earthquake all night. She's running around in heels, covered in dust. Green Inferno, she Does gets- she want to fucking kill you? Is she like, Eli, leave me alone. Stop this. She loves, I mean, look, I think she. And she loves the acting and doing it. She's Chilean. She's Chile- Lorenza. Yeah. Does she ever just literally look at you and go, enough, I'm done. Yes. Eli, I'm done. Oh yeah. oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Do you ever laugh at her while she's crying and screaming? Yeah, I do. Well, only when the cameras are rolling. Like we have a scene in Green Inferno where she's in a river and they had a cord around remember, her yeah. because she had to scream cuerda. They had like a, a word, like a safe word. Right. And I was like, action. And she, of course, slipped and really started drowning and screaming. And the cord went up into her ribs and she was trying to scream and like coughing and I was like, God, I love her. Look at her. She's just going She's for it. So good. But the She's river was so loud, dying. I couldn't hear her screaming. And we finally had to cut. Like, she almost, she almost drowned. But her performance is amazing. I also feel like she doesn't get – I think that people look at the movies and go, oh, it's just gory. Like, I think a lot of the times – I think what makes the movies work is the acting. I honestly do. I yeah. think the kills the are great. acting, that's it. I think it's it's the look on Derek Richardson's face, Jay Hernandez's face, Heather Monterosso. They sell it. And they sell it. If they're bad acting, it's not – it's not really – they've got to be fun. you got to care about them. And I think she's such an amazing actress. She is. I believe and her then, when she's being tortured for sure. <laughs> you believe it. I, and, I just do. And, and it's English hard is to her that. second language. When you watch her for real, she's you know speaking Spanish. So, But we've uh, had a great – but Knock Knock, she gets to do the torturing. So it's Right. Fun. And, I, and I have yet to see Knock Knock, and I want to see you it. you got to see it. I worked with Keanu. He's I the know. nicest guy in the world. the sweetest guy. I played a transvestite in Sweet November, and every day I go, hi, right. Keanu. He's the he's best. Like, Whoa. He's really- calling me Keanu. What's that? I'm like, I just the Little love plan. It's on Hulu. Yes, watch Knock Knock. I, I mean, honestly, this is this is awesome having you on here. I mean, uh, by the way, I mean, you've done cameos and everything. The Horse Whisperer, Office Worker Number Four, Shocked Onlooker, Boyfriend, yeah. Frightened Citizen, Justin, stuff. and I was, uh, I'm Kevin the world's Fever. worst extra. I'm, I love that you do this. You work, work yeah. in trauma movies. It's, yeah, uh, it's Lloyd Kaufman. I'm well, sure. Lloyd will call me and go, "Hey, we're shooting," and you go by and say hi, and then he points a camera at you, and next thing you know, you're in his movie. It's not like you you go, "Oh, I'm going to be in a trauma movie today." You're like. Oh, hey, let's stop by and see Lloyd. And like, wait, what's going on? You're next to Lemmy. Now, I told you that uh, Eli yes. and I are big Gordon Lightfoot fans. And even if Gordon. you don't like it, uh, we're going to try this. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Picking up the pieces of my sweet cheddar dream. I wonder how the old folks are tonight. Her name was Anne, and I'll be damned if I recall her face. She left me not knowing what to do Carefree highway Let me slip away on you Carefree highway You've seen better days The morning after blues From my head down to my shoe Carefree highway Let me slip away Slip away on you not a lot of Tim, but who gets Wow. I get chills here. And we need to do another Gord night for sure. Oh, that was Long so much overdue. fun. We've had too much fun. This has been a real treat. I mean, there's so much to you. You speak Russian. You speak... Duh. God, I could talk to you. We... Well, to be continued. We'll do it again. This is too much fun, really. Um, Eli, you're, you're doing everything. I love that you're working it. so much, and I'm proud of you. You're married. I'm proud of you, man. You finally got married. You did it before me. I know. I don't know if I'll get married. I hope I do. It was great. It was the right time. I mean, I married two and a half years, and I love it. It's like when you find the right person, it just everything falls into place. I actually like. I feel way more productive and happy, and 
It's awesome. In a way, I feel like your your father, you're psychoanalyzing me in a good way. Like I really no, appreciate I'm just this saying, therapy. But you can't, no, I, I do. You can't do it with the wrong person. It's got to be someone who is totally your equal, your match, your challenge. Like you know, someone you really love. And she's younger, has a totally different perspective mm, on things. But that's we, good too. But we really. You know, South American, just another perspective on the world. The best. Eli. Michael. Thank you for allowing me to be inside of you. You are welcome inside of me anytime. All right, guys. That was, that was really amazing. Thanks. Right, good. You're right. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.